Welcome to episode 251 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. If you like Stageworthy and you listen on Apple Podcasts, I hope that you will consider leaving a five-star rating or a comment or both. I don't know if you know this, but your ratings and comments help new people find the show. There is something in the algorithm that makes shows with comments and ratings appear higher in searches. So that helps with discovery. So if, you, if you're inclined, if you've enjoyed Stageworthy in the past, please leave a rating. Or even better, if you know someone that you think will like the show, tell them about it. Some of my favorite podcasts became my favorites because someone I know told me about them. And remember, you can find and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and everywhere else that you get podcasts just by searching for Stageworthy and clicking the handy subscribe button. And if you want to support Stageworthy, consider dropping some change in the virtual tip jar. You can find a link to that in the show notes. Your support helps me continue to bring you great conversations in Canadian theater. You can find Stageworthy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at StageworthyPod. And the website with the archive of all 251 episodes is at StageworthyPodcast.com. And if you want to drop me a line, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at PhilRickaby. And my website is PhilRickaby.com. My guest this week is Hamilton-born, Toronto-based director, playwright, dramaturg, and community builder, Aaron Jan. So Aaron, are you are you actually are you are you in Hamilton now or are you still in Toronto? What's your what's your what's your locale? Um well, I was stuck in Hamilton for 100 days cuz I was directing a musical and I came back to the city on July 4th. So, Ooh. yeah, so for America Day, I finally returned to <laughs> Toronto and I, I feel I returned to Toronto at kind of a good time because we were in phase 2 and everything was going yeah. and like mm-hmm. Yeah, Hamilton was like a dead zone. It was really, really sad being there, but also very productive sad. So I'm glad to be back. But also, I am I think I'm happy to be back at this time because I had 100 days away from the city. So I feel like I'm looking at it very differently than I did before. Yeah. When did you when did you go out there? Like just at the start of the lockdown or? Um, May. No, May. Wow. March 14th. Because I had oh. rehearsal on March 15th. And then my production was shut down on March 17th as well as all the buses were shut down from uh, Hamilton to Toronto. Right. Oh, that's a, that's a, cause you were, you were not in Toronto during the period where everybody was shacked up in fear. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I experienced the beginning of that though. Cause I live across the street from a Metro. So I, I was, oh. I, I was here for like five seconds before things got <laughs> really bad. Yeah. Um, I think I was here. I was last year, the weekend ARC canceled their show. ARC did a production of Oil that canceled it. And mm-hmm. um, I just remember walking through the Metro and just seeing all the toilet paper gone. And I was like, <laughs> I feel sad being here. So maybe I need to leave. I didn't anticipate I would leave for so long. Uh, no. But uh, yeah, over a hundred days in Hamilton. Haven't been uh, wow. there. I haven't been over a hundred days consecutively since uh, 2010. So it was a very strange experience. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, I know, I know how what Toronto was like. Uh, the streets were pretty much empty. Um, there was nobody out. There were lines at the at the grocery store and almost nothing else. Um, nobody was going out. It was pretty freaky. What, was Hamilton pretty much the same? Hamilton was always like that. Even when it entered phase two, there'd be some people on patios. But like, I don't know. Hamilton is a very busy city. So, um, really, it was kind of refreshing to not be scared of the virus in Hamilton. Like, I would still mm. sanitize, I'd still bring my mask. But um, there wasn't quite a level of fear I found in the city because, I don't know, people hang out less there. There's less of a culture of hanging out. Mm. Um, whereas when I came back to Toronto, like, and I was walking around, like, I would see, like, all these teenagers um, illegally on playground equipment. And that yeah. just didn't happen in Hamilton. It was just, mm. I just think there's, like, a... Hamilton has always struck me as a sleepier, more conservative town. 
in terms of uh, rule breaking and lawlessness. So um, yeah, I I felt very safe in Hamilton. And and like, even though I was really not happy to be there for most of it, um, I, I was thankful I felt secure. Um, I would say, uh, to me, it seems like the um, Hamilton is is conservative and and everything like that, except during Art Crawl. Yeah, Art, Art Crawl is like, oh, oh, young people appear. And yes, Art Crawl is like this mysterious thing that happens. Yeah, um, it, it's it's funny too because like I, I also just think there's like, and this is of course me speaking, being removed from the city for a while, but there's a gathering culture of like downtown being a place to hang out in. Um, just because when I was growing up, I was told if I go downtown, I'll get killed. And my parents still think that like when I was, I, when I was in Hamilton, I would just go for two to four hour walks just because I wanted to see how far I could walk. Um, mm. because there was nothing else to do, but walk in the city. Um, so, um, I remember I would walk downtown sometimes. My mom was like, you're going to die if you go downtown. And I'm like, I'm a grown adult, but the fact is that's how I was brought up. So that, that was intriguing to me. Just to like, downtown Hamilton or downtown Toronto? Downtown Hamilton. Downtown Hamilton oh, used to be okay. super sketchy. Um, I don't know. It feels a lot more open now because like there's that whole area of Gore Park that like kind of has a walking only area. Um, there's lots of restaurants downtown now. Uh, but prior to that, it was like it was pretty pretty rough. Um, yeah, and my mom, mom, Mama Jan was not in favor of her 28 year old son uh, walking down there on foot. And you were you were you grew up in Hamilton around the the end of the steel age and before the art is the new steel era. Yeah, actually, I was literally like in that threshold. Like I hmm. was born in 92 and I think I left before this art is the new steel thing. And like, yeah, I, I, I buy that art is the new steel thing. But I also think that like it depends on your discipline, like visual art is the new steel. Absolutely. Yeah. Our art galleries are like amazing. The music mm-hmm. scene is thriving. Theater wise, I'm not so sure. But uh, yeah. I'm doing some stuff to try to subvert that. But yeah, I, I'm uh, I uh, I think it was very illuminating being stuck there and kind of developing a strange Stockholm syndrome toward my former hometown. Mm. I also had a uh, a, a bit of a cynical uh, a feeling to myself, like as a cynic, um, about the 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 whole artist and new steel uh, idea. To me, it's it felt like. Yes, we will say that art is a new steel until the artists make Hamilton cool again, and then the 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 property values will go up, and then the artists won't be able to afford to be here anymore. But that's okay because things will be back, and and people will be buying property again. Mm-hmm. I, I think just to add on to that point, my concern with art being the new steel in theater is how many people are getting paid. That's, that's my- the other thing. Yeah, like, but more importantly, something I've discovered in Hamilton is there's not a culture of applying for funding. And there's not an education that as Hamilton-based artists, you have an advantage on arts councils and juries. So part of the work I've been doing in the city, I mean, I'm not in the city right now, but like mm. I've been offering grant writing classes to artists for the OAC deadline. Cause like I've been very, very lucky to be on four juries as well as I win, I think 75% of the grants I've applied for. Mm-hmm. So um, I'm trying just to boost the education factor. Cause like, I think there are so many wonderful artists in the city who don't know how much money is actually out there and how many yeah. people actually want to support them. So they're not just relying on box office or they're not relying on a non-existent fringe tour to pay their bills. Yeah. I mean, that there, that is, that is certainly a, a good point because um, a lot of the theaters that I know of in Hamilton, I was talking years ago to Stephen Neer mm. uh, and who's, who's been in Hamilton for a while and, and, and really active in the arts community there. And he was mentioning how, it felt strange to him that people had a lot of respect for the amateur companies mm-hmm. in, in Hamilton and not a whole lot for the professional company. And um, that it was almost like um, there was like this undercurrent of, of, of the professional stuff isn't as good as, or as important as the stuff that we're doing in these amateur companies. And yet also um, uh, this, you know, since nobody's being paid there, like, what's happening. And yet I know all these people who are creating interesting art out there. It's a very, very interesting situation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, just going to, I said this on another uh, radio show recently, but I think it bears reiterating. I think it's who has a greater community practice and the community mm-hmm. theaters obviously have a greater community practice mm-hmm. because not only are they selling out shows, but their price point is more accessible. Um, mm-hmm. They're engaging local performers from the community, something Aquarius does not do unless you're carrying a pike. Um, 
And, uh, yeah, they, they seem to be, like, they have the community rallied around them. And they're venue theaters. They're not necessarily the nicest theaters, but they're venue theaters that serve their community. Whereas I think Aquarius is seen as a kind of luxury theater, and that's their prerogative. I'm not there to yeah. tell them what to do or not, but there's a disconnect from the community. They're hiring actors who don't live in Hamilton, per se, or if they do live in Hamilton, the majority of them are in, like, in bit roles or like roles that just are essentially as-cast roles. Um, so that's a thing. Um, and also, like, Hamilton playwrights are not seen on the main stage of Theatre Aquarius. And yeah. that's just, like, something that's there. Whereas in a community theatre, you might see a local Hamiltonian play. Or you might see a local Hamiltonian director who yeah. trained and was raised here and has come back to do something. And I think that, like, that's where that community engagement comes in. And that's probably why the community theatres are tighter to the community than um, the only patch-registered theatre in the city. Yeah, it's really interesting because, you know, my my time there during Fringe um, a few years ago was just like realizing that 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 Hamilton. People want to be boosters and people want to see stuff that's from there. They want people who are from there. And, you know, if you're doing the Fringe and you're from Toronto, you better stay there and you better be seen there because somehow they know that you're just like driving in to do your show and then driving out, they want you to be part of it. And the, the scene rewards um, uh, the homegrown because it wants to, it wants to support it. Mm -hmm. I buy that. Um, uh, just because I think that's one of the things I grew to appreciate about Hamilton. It's like mm. people want to build infrastructure here. They just don't know how. Um, so if you give them that nugget of information, you give them that opportunity to support They'll come running. Like, uh, I was running a project. I am. I don't know it was. I'm running a project called The Garden Project, where uh, we raised $18,000 in four weeks uh, to commission BIPOC artists, four BIPOC artists who are Hamilton-based, to make something new. That money mm. was so easy to find because mm. all these Hamilton artists and theater people, and not just theater people, people who, like, felt they wanted to support the Hamilton community were willing to give us that money because we gave them that outlet. We gave them that infrastructure. So, mm -hmm. so I, I just think there's, there, there, to advance Hamilton's theater community, there needs to be more opportunities for people to make money and a living in the arts, which, uh, which requires A, building infrastructure, but B, becoming stronger at writing grants and not relying on the fringe as the be-all, end-all. That's what this time of pause, I think, has really given a lot of people. It's, it's allowing us to seriously reconsider how we're making money in the arts and um, what other avenues we can do to reach it. So I'm... I've become, I'm still cynical, but I've become um, kind of a believer in Hamilton just because, like, hmm. it's not the people. It's just a lack of information about how to build infrastructure and how to gather resources. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it's and I mean, it's interesting because um, here we are in this time where people can really take the time to soak up information because ain't nobody can put anything on yep. anyway. So you might as well educate yourself on how, when things do open up, you can start to try to get some money to do the thing that you thought that you would have to do and just scrape by. Mm -hmm. and, and like, I, I, there's a kind of a really cool high school thing about Hamilton. Whereas like when you do something, it creates a ripple effect because mm. people see that and they want to learn how to do it. Like that is mm -hmm. something that like I, I found really inspiring. Cause I, cause the reason I was stuck in Hamilton, this is maybe a little embarrassing, but not really. Cause I'm actually quite proud of this now. Initially I was very ashamed of it. Um, I was working on a community theater production of Spring Awakening uh, okay. because I've always wanted to direct musicals. And um, I came in there with like a professional process. Like we did unit breakdowns. Uh, mm. Like there was rigor to the work. Um, we were focusing on like intention above spectacle. Um, I was pushing my designers and my choreographers and my music directors um, to like really, really make really, really strong work. And like from what I saw of that was people were willing to step up to the challenge um, so, hmm. like, if if you bring something to Hamilton's community and you bring it with, like, care and generosity, I realize people want to soak it up and people want to jump in and people want to learn. So all, all you have to do is open that door and then hmm. people will come jumping in. Like, I've been offering these grant writing classes online. I think I've taught, like, 10 Hamiltonian artists. And, like, they're like, I want to I, – I feel I can win funding now. And I'm like, yes, because – we are at an advantage as Hamilton-based or Hamilton-associated artists. So I'm yeah. I'm so confident about Hamilton now that, like, Garden Project is up 
And now that like people are engaging it with money in a more critical way and not just constantly producing, producing, producing work because mm -hmm. the city wants to learn. It's like a high school hunger. You see your buddy um, do the track team. You're like, maybe I can do track. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I'm not yeah. saying, I'm not saying like I'm a track person cause I'm terrible at running, but like, but like if, if someone does something cool, there's like, I feel the cynicism and jealousy in Hamilton is not as much as I've encountered maybe somewhere else. Hmm. Well, it's interesting because I always think when I see something cool on stage, mm -hmm. I want to, I want to be like, okay, so let's, let's dig into what that is. Let's dig into how they did that. Yeah. That makes me want to do something cool, mm -hmm. you know, rather than just being like, well, fuck those guys for doing something cool. <laughs> which is, which is number one, not constructive and kind of toxic. Oh God. Yeah. Um, but you know, interesting. Cause I think, you know, having come to the point of, of not being, quote unquote, as you said, ashamed of doing an amateur production of of Spring Awakening, like where else are you going to learn how to direct a musical exactly. in a very forgiving environment? Precisely. And that, that was like a lot of my friends were like, why the fuck are you doing this? And I was like, because I want to it's the same reason why you do fringe, right? Yeah. You try something else in a, out in a low risk environment, but you bring the professional rigor to that process. And I was fortunate too that like I I was armed with a lot of grant money going into that, so like mm -hmm. I had a cushion to rely on. Yeah. Um but like I don't know, it was like I, I really want to direct projects of scale now. Like that's I'm done with fringes. I've done 10 fringes in 8 years and that time yeah. of my life is over. So I'm like, okay, what's my next step? I want to get into a regional house and I want to direct musical theater using my gross weird indie sensibilities that I've gained from all the festival shows I've done. So like, let's try it in a safe controlled environment and then maybe never do that again, but yeah. also like take the skills I learned from that. Um, cause again, I've never directed a musical before. So, um, when I apply for musical theater, cause I had, I had booked musical theater work, like paid directing work during spring that unfortunately got postponed because of COVID. But like yeah. I applied to that with so much confidence because of the skills I had gained in Spring Awakening. Yeah, no, it's it's funny because indie theater and and fringe when I mean, you can't really get much more indie than fringe, but hmm. indie theater as an umbrella, like you learn so many things. Yep, doing that that you know eventually, like when you graduate from that to larger houses and things like that, like you have you have knowledge that that other people who haven't done that don't have. Absolutely. Cause like I think about, so what at Fringe we have a three hour tech, right? That to yeah. me, I was talking to one of my friends who's a designer um, and, and he was saying that like, huh, okay, three hour tech. What did that teach a lighting designer? It teaches them to program quickly and efficiently. So like when they have a full tech week, they can really economize their time. Um, yeah. So like, I, I think there's like, there is no shame to doing fringe festivals. All no. of my professional equity work has come because someone has seen a fringe show I've done and has taken it somewhere. Like my work with Silk Path Collective, after next stage, we got picked up by Tarragon to develop and then we got picked up by Soul Pepper. Yeah. Um, all the teaching work I have is because an AD has seen me champion young artists in a fringe show and they've given me like professional teaching gigs. So mm -hmm. like, I, I just think the festivals, people poo poo them all the time, but I'm like, if you're an artist out of school, um, you should try your damnedest to either get in the fringe or get in a show you really believe in, because that is like a beautiful trial by fire that will teach you so much about the art form. I, I take all the skills I've learned from fringe into my equity work because like it, it just teaches me so much about also creating with urgency and creating with an opening in mind. To me, there's there I, like personally, I haven't heard people poo poo the fringe, and, but it is such a necessary part of of an artist's growth. Like mm. every artist should, unless you've already quote unquote made it, whatever that means in Canada. If you're working steadily, you don't need to do this. But if you're not, you need to learn how to create your own work. You need to learn how to market it, and you need to learn how to how to how to sell it to other people. What better way to do that? to do a fringe show and then be not not only have a, a, a like a finished marketable product but know how to sell it know how to talk to people about it like i don't know i don't know what else could teach you how to do that yeah um yeah i don't know like i'm teaching a bunch of courses at york right now and like one of the biggest things everyone asks what's the first advice you give someone my always thing is do a friendship do yeah. a friend show get out there and also 
be, be nice to people. <laughs> I think that's, that's the other thing. But that is, that is certainly another thing. Yeah. Cause like I, I, something I'm learning in this industry is that like people, like it's cool to be mean in theater school. I feel we all have a phase in theater school. Where we're like, Oh my God, I hate that person. Me too. Ha ha. But then like, I think when we're in the real world, there's like a real coming of age and we realize we all don't really have money. None of us yeah. really know what we're doing. So like, you want you you want to hire people who are good, but if that person's a jerk, that'll go around super fast, and you won't get work. So to me, Fringe is also an example of kindness. Like if you see someone yeah. showing you love it, send them a message on Facebook because like they could be getting zero houses, and seeing that you've ch- impacted one person or could like start a beautiful relationship or make you feel less alone. Like I think yeah. I think that's something I wish I learned when I was younger. But like I, yeah. I think that's what I do love about Fringe that we're all in the same playing field and like there are chances to engage with people's work you've never seen before and engage positively. Yeah. I, I love when I've seen something that is just so amazing and beautiful and being able to, to tell that person, to see them at the fringe patio and just say, you know, I saw your show. It was fucking beautiful. Right? And just be able to share that moment with somebody. Fuck. Yeah. Yeah. Um, oh, and of course now, um, since we we don't have a fringe at all this year, yep. Um, you know, I'm I've been missing that, mm-hmm. but also I think you know, we're all sort of grappling with the idea of what do we do now? Yeah, um, I am going to say something a little controversial, but why not? Do it, do it, do it! I love it. Um, so these whole Zoom plays don't work for me because they're not aware of the medium they're using. They're not aware of the container of Zoom they're using or the container of SoundCloud or the container of Vimeo. Like if you're making work, I think you need to be aware of the container you're presenting in. It's like, it's like if you put an intimate three-hander on the Royal Alex's stage with a fringe set, that's what a lot of these Zoom plays feel to me like. So an example of this that like subverts it to me is like, uh, I'm roommates with a Maddie Bautista and she has a company called XLQ and they do interactive game show theater. So I saw a show of theirs called Foreign Exchange where with four audience members, you compete for $1,000 of real money and they send e-transfers after the show. So it's a real life competition hmm. through like weird ass drag game show. And that to me was an example of you're using the medium effectively because they did whole movement sequences through Zoom where like, we would adjust our lighting in the room to create blackouts and scene changes while they would illuminate Mm. certain sectors. And to me, that's like, Mm. that's how you use it effectively. So like, I I admit, I found, I mean, I really appreciate the work of my colleagues uh, because I had a lot of good friends in the fringe. um, And I really appreciate the quality of some of the videos and the quality of some of the performances. But to me, it wasn't a a substitute because like you need to use the medium you're given. You're not being given a stage right now. You're being given an interactive window on conference call software, potentially conference yeah. call software that cuts out when you interrupt people. So what if you're making work for that medium, like you have to be aware of the limitations of that. Otherwise it does look like you're putting in your intimate three hander onto one of Mervish's stages with the same lighting plot you had at fringe. So like, I, I think that's, that's the future to me. If until we get a vaccine to stick into our arms, is that we need to figure out how we use our containers a little more carefully. I honestly don't think you're saying anything particularly controversial because I think, and Zoom is a starting point. Zoom is an educational starting point for all of us who know, who've known zero about video and streaming and whatever, but there's a certain amount of fatigue. Yep. Um, because if you're presenting to people who quite frankly, everybody has been in the equivalent of Zoom meetings every day for the last hundred days. Yep. Um, when they go to see something that's supposed to be theater and that presents them with that Brady Bunch grid and everybody talking and it looks exactly like when they're at work, like they check out because that's not that's not entertainment. The brain doesn't accept it. We have to, I think, you know, we have to find different ways to use the medium and to experiment with it, to push it in the ways that you're suggesting. And that requires us to understand what medium we're in and that we can't just treat it like a stage. Precisely. Um, another example of this that really worked for me, uh, 
was outside the march to their ministry of mundane mysteries and that was all through phone but like hmm. they didn't ignore the fact that i was on the phone with them and like the fact that the mystery would evolve based on my choices and my decisions in 10 minute phone calls to different characters over six days like there was something truly magical about that like i i received the final call the day i got back to toronto i was cleaning my room and I just got on the balcony and just like hearing my story end and the way mm. it ended and having a stake in that was beautiful because like I felt like as an audience member on a one-on-one -on -one phone call, like I was complicit in that narrative and I helped that narrative end. I think mm. about this online space as like if we're choosing to make online, I also don't, I think there's not a problem with not making things right now and not mm. putting things out. Like if you want to develop shows in your room and then put them to, actually this is a tangent, I think we're able to workshop now once we enter phase three, just with distancing, but to rewind, if you just want to write in your room and don't have a showing, I think that's perfectly acceptable because I think now we're inundated with all these Zoom plays that do not address the container they're in or yeah. all these like online things, online pre-recorded videos that unfortunately are, are the same as um, when someone covers a song online. It's like, this yeah. is cool, but like, I don't think this is theater. No, and and and... You know, I was talking when I was talking to to AB Smith. We were talking about uh, video a little bit, and and you know, there's that fine line between like if we go too far, are we just doing film? Mm. Um, and and there's that that line between it. But I do think that um, we can be more dynamic. We can find ways to present uh, that are not that are aware of the screen that we're working in. Mm -hmm. that that are not just a talking head and are not just a series of talking heads that you can't control the order of and things like that there are ways that we can do it that could make it dynamic that 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 might that are make it easier for people to look at and to engage with so that it's not it doesn't look like a, another meeting and we have to push all of the boundaries of the medium yeah or you just go the opposite way um the show is a conference call yeah like the show is a conference call and maybe there's a screen share and maybe you're privy to a conference call. Like I think about, I think about the Huns actually. That oh fuck. I was just thinking about the right. Huns. The Huns actually is one of the few plays where I'm like, this actually translates incredibly well. Oh <laughs> yeah. Like, yes. Yeah. Like the Huns as like a conference call you're privy to. Um, but I also wonder just like how do you up the ante of the Huns? If like, if whose screen are you watching? Like if one yes. of the characters is on like Pornhub while they're on the conference call, for example. Yes. If one yeah. of the characters is like clicking around, if one of the characters is away from the keyboard and has is doing something else in the background, like to me that the Huns is like a perfect example of something that is so easy to translate because the Huns yeah. already has a container. In fact, I would argue the online container might work even stronger than what was presented at Fringe last year. Mm. Like that actually yeah. excites me. So if Michael Ross Albert is listening to this, I don't know when we'll or if this is going to come out, but like this seems like grant bait, and I think Michael Ross Albert can win funding for this. Yeah, absolutely. I've I have been thinking for a while that that you know I, I, there's a couple of, of 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 groups that are doing like reading Shakespeare through Zoom and things like that, and it's just like a a group of people gathering. But I if we're doing this for another year, because that's potentially possible. Yep that we are not able to get back into the theaters, whether or not, you know, we can workshop stuff. The theaters may not open, but even if they do, does the audience want to come back? All of those things, we may be uh, a year away from, from doing stuff. Yeah. We need to start like developing stuff that uses the medium. Like you're saying, I want to see if somebody, instead of just doing Shakespeare, like what's the COVID version of Romeo and Juliet and, 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 and how does that, use the medium and be aware that like here we are on this on this conference call how does that look yep or even even going further like what does socially distanced romeo and juliet look like with masks Ooh. like you're outside mm. in a giant field and like maybe you have headsets and you can't listen to the entire show because mm. like they're physically far away or if it's like a live mic situation or if it's a vr situation like mm. I, i'm super curious about like how do we, if distancing is something that is required for the live element, what does that look like in a live space? Like, um, I don't know. I, I, I've been dreaming up about projects and I'm thinking about Concord Floral now. And I'm like, what does a post-COVID Concord Floral look like? 
with teens mm. wearing masks and they're not allowed to touch each other. Like how do you yes. bully someone without touching them? Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think that I think that there's there's a lot to be a lot of boundaries to be pushed. And I kind of think that we've been feeling a little bit complacent. Well, this is good enough for now. Don't don't innovate because we don't have to because we'll be back in the theater lickety split. And I don't think that we are. Yeah, I mean, like Fauci says, well, we're going to get a vaccine by December. But to be honest with you, even if we do get a vaccine by December, the amount of anti-vaxxers down south who could potentially come up and infect us with a new strain. Right. Like. Yeah. Like, I don't, I think theater is going to be done until at least the end of the 2021 season. So like at yeah. earliest, I think we're back next spring, if that, yeah. um, but like, Cause I, yeah. I, I've been thinking about, you know, there's, there's a thing that never meant anything in the theater until now. And that is you're sitting in an audience and there's a, there's, you know, you've, the, the house is full and the lights start to go down and somebody uh, in the orchestra coughs and somebody in the balcony coughs. But now, until there's until we are over this, a cough in a theater will be like a gunshot. Yep. Uh, it's actually like, uh, I know horror theater is a thing, but that's horror theater. You oh, 100%. And the show, it's like an absurd thing. The show never start, stop, starts. It's just coughing, and then all, like actors in paramedic costumes whisk someone out and it's like actually an installation horror piece oh. <laughs> never see the play but that i mean somebody could play with that because this is the world that we're going to be living in for like like if it if we get through the 2021 season and it's like the spring before we can even start thinking about putting stuff on stage then we have we've got to you know we're going to be like as people come into the theater, they're not going to rush back in. No, they're going to be. We're going to have to settle for the fact that there's going to be a period of time when the audiences are going to be a little bit sparse. But I also think hungry, mm-hmm. because it is a potential to bring people to the theater who haven't been there before. Because for them, having spent all this time watching Netflix and watching Disney Plus and all of this stuff at home. Now they're looking for an experience out in the world and theater gives them something they, that, that is different from sitting at home. And so maybe once we can get them back in, they'll come with, with a little bit more excitement and, and, and a little bit more uh, potential for experimentation. Absolutely. Um, I think people are hungry to come back. They just want to feel safe. And yeah. um, to be honest, in a theater space, we can't feel safe until there's a vaccine. Lord knows I don't want to see a plastic shield in front of me when I watch a play. Um, And I think every, almost every professional company in Canada right now is knows that for themselves. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I mean, I mean, Mervish was saying, you know, we're going to aim for January, but I think right now nobody expects them to be back in January. No, no. And like, I think it's just inevitable. Like Crows doesn't cancel their season yet, but like, I don't think Crows is having a season. Theater Aquarius is just canceled their season. Um, so it's, it's like, I think, I think the thing about theater and versus like film, cause I know some cinemas are reopening. It's like theater is about people and theater is about yeah. taking care of people, not just yeah. the people on stage, but like your audiences as well. Cause they're like, they're in person. It's a person to person interaction. So like, I, I feel confident that like that people will hold out and nobody's going to jeopardize the safety of a live audience. Um, because like, yeah, it's a, it's a people industry and that's why we're all in this. And, and movie theaters are a little bit different. I have some friends who live out east in, in New Brunswick, and the th- some of the movie theaters are open there, although there's no new movies to go see because COVID. Yep. Um, so they go to see some older movies, and they go to see they go to the theater, and a theater that held hundreds is now holding maybe 50, but spread out, and it feels super empty. And that's something that you can do in a movie theater. Yep. Because you need minimal staff, but for the like for theater, you need your crew, you need your stage managers, you need like the actors, you need the front of house. There's so many people, and you can't just distance your way out of it because there's too many other factors. Like the all these people have to get paid. Yep. And a, and a small house isn't going to do that. No, even if you're on grant funding, like you still require box office in your budget. So yeah. So yeah, yeah. I don't know. I I, I don't. I, there was that really sad article about that, like Shakespeare festivals doing like one person shows. I mean, it's the state, so I don't think you should be doing anything in the states right now until um, you have a vaccine in your arm. But like, yeah. I just looked at that and I was like, that is so fucking sad. Like, yeah. 
it's fine to not produce. It's fine to not produce. And that's yes. okay. That is totally acceptable. It's fine to work on nothing during this pandemic. Unless you have government funding, then you should be working on something if you can. But like, mm. but like, if you're not doing anything and if you're just sad, that's fine. Like, like I think I think the beautiful thing about a time of pause like this, I've accepted that phrase now, is mm. that um, it's giving us a time to really think about how we can like be more equitable in our practice, but also like how we can be better in our practice. Like, is our work actually reaching people? How can we make our work better? Is that play I've been thinking about in the back of my head, is it really as strong as I think it is? Or is that second act need another thing of investment? I think there's something really nourishing about that. Or to not even think yeah. about that and just sit and watch Netflix all day. That's fine. Like, yeah, I think in a capitalist structure, we are so determined to put out as much work as possible that this time of rest has really given, like, hopefully given a lot of people time to like reevaluate their art and make it stronger or just take a break. Yeah. Yeah. It, you know, I mean, when this, when this started, I remember feeling so much pressure to create mm -hmm. and so many people were putting so much pressure on themselves to create. Ah, mm -hmm. now theater has paused and now we can come out. I can, you know, when Shakespeare was under quarantine, he wrote King Lear and, and like, okay, but you can't be creative when all you feel is anxiety yeah so i think that we've had to like i've come to terms with the fact that i am not going to be as productive as maybe i wanted to be mm -hmm. but i have to accept that i will be as productive and creative as i can be yeah and i think that's that's the big thing just forgiving yourself because we're in a time of high emotional duress and unpredictability yeah. that has not existed really in our lifetimes for this duration so like Mm -hmm. like being kind to yourself and practicing as much self-care as you can, including in online spaces, like disengaging from the online sphere, going outside. Like there's something really, really good about that. And that's something that I want to take into my own practice once we're out of this pandemic in the next 17 years, or however long it takes. Yeah. There's something interesting that I've noticed just generally in Toronto. And, and, and you know, it used to be a thing that only happened in one park in Toronto. Yeah. And that was like people just sort of like spending the day in a park. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, you know, people will do that in Trinity Bellwoods, but I'm seeing it more elsewhere, like people just going for walks or yeah. people like spending the day in the shade or in the sun in a park in ways that, I mean, there are no other options. We don't have all the things that usually distract us. Yeah. So, um, going out for air and going out and just spending an afternoon in a park that is now entertainment enough for us. Mm -hmm. And I kind of like that. Cause like. In a way, we're reestablishing real human connections. Or we're not. Mm -hmm. But, like, I don't know. I was in a park with a buddy for a socially distance meeting yesterday. And, like, we talked for three hours. And we lost track of time. And, like, but I, I think just, like, in another world, I would be thinking about my phone the entire time. And I'd be yeah. thinking about all of my gigs. And the person would not be more important than, yeah. than my gigs. And, like, it's just really nice to, like, be back in the city and see people from a distance in person and be like, hey, we're together and like, we don't have to talk industry shit. And this whole industry creature isn't looming over our shoulder because nobody's working right now unless you're in film and yeah. you're like, uh, you're, you, you miraculously have booked some work in, uh, in Toronto because traveling to Vancouver yeah, is out of the question right now. Absolutely. That, it's, it's funny because I had a, my first socially distance hangout with a friend a couple weeks ago mm. and it took us maybe five, 10 minutes to figure out how to talk in person. Interesting. There was like this period of time we were like, okay, so we're here. Yes, we're here. Okay. Mm -hmm. That's weird. This is weird. Mm -hmm. You know, once we got past that, everything was fine. But there was this brief period of like, ah, uh, speaking to another person in person. <laughs> I don't know how I feel about that. It's weird. Yeah. Yeah. Um. Yeah. That's all I got to add to it. Just, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I started um, doing Zoom Netflix parties with my friends and like, uh, my friend also named Aaron, we're watching all the Fast and Furious movies and we're just like, it's just fun. And I realized that like, I would have never connected with her in this way yeah. if we were not in pandemic. Like I would have never thought to watch the Fast and the Furious movies with someone equally as cynical as me. And I just find such joy in that. It's like, yeah. And like, I don't know. I, I think that's, that's part of like my socialization. And like, I find it very refreshing to like reconnect with laughing and like, that's, that's something I've been trying to practice more. I've had a, a couple of friends who have done the, the well, here we are in quarantine, might as well watch the Fast and the Furious se uh, series and um, gotten a whole lot of entertainment out of it. Yeah. 
they're so bad and i love how bad like, the first one is actually incomprehensible i mean like we could do a whole, i i've been to do a whole podcast about the fast and the furious because like not only are they bonkers and terrible but they actually have the most diverse cast in a blockbuster action movie franchise in history mm. but they're mm. also dreadful like i think i was watching this 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 video um they describe it as car foo like the way the fighting is because like because in the fifth one um these people um dom and brian are with their cars they are driving a giant safe like dragging behind their cars and they're using that giant safe as a battering ram to murder every single police officer in rio the police are getting crushed they're getting killed they're dying and it's this giant safe and the entire film is like a heist they're like oh we're going to get the safe it's going to be cool and at the end of the film they're like fuck it we're just going to grab the safe and murder everyone and it's just like Jesus. it's unquestioned and like <laughs> yeah and it makes it makes it like it's like why are we making theater like this theater that is stupid <laughs> like but also theater that is incredibly high production value where people are wielding like giant safes as weapons you know i i would like to say that that I, I love. I mean, it's great to see theater that has a message and theater that has meaning. But I'm also a big fan of theater that it just exists to entertain. Oh yeah, much like the Fast and the Furious movies, they're just there to entertain. Mm-hmm. Well, well, I will challenge that, Phil. The Fast and the Furious movies are about family and barbecues. That is that. Oh, okay, okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I missed that important that important thing because i haven't done the whole watch through god phil you have to it's on my list and now that we've spoken about it i absolutely will have to do it i will probably live tweet it because i did that when i watched finally watched spider-man 3 (laughs) i'd avoided that movie for so long and i was like well gonna do it and it was terrible and i will have to live tweet the whole damn thing uh i will say um with the Fast and the Furious films, um, Aaron and I have discovered that um, you have to watch them in two parts because they're incredibly boring, but like oh, you have really? to space them out. Because like really? uh, initially they're like 75 minute adventures and you're like, okay, these are pretty bad, whatever. But like when you get to like Fast and Furious 4, they become two hours to almost three hours. Jesus. Of, like nonstop action and like limitless violence and quips. But like the, in, in the eighth one, Fate of the Furious, uh, Charlize Theron has like monologues where she says absolutely nothing. And she like tries to tell stories she's like, she's like, Dom. And he's like, yeah. And she's like, have you ever heard this story about a monkey who ate a grapefruit? The monkey walked through the forest and stubbed his toe. And Dom's like, tell me more. And she's like, and then a spider ate the monkey. And Dom's like, oh. And she's like, I will resume the story in 20 minutes. Like, literally, that's the entire <laughs> And, like, we had to stop three times because we were so bored. And we were like, this is actually terrible. Um, but it's worth it. Like, getting through the ride is worth it. I will say, also, because I know you're recording this, anyone listening at home, um, the order you have to watch them in is <laughs> you will need to go one, two, four, five, six, three, seven, eight, then Hobbs and Shaw. That seems so arcane. It's stupid because three is between six and seven because they killed off a character in three. They brought back for four because they were like, oh shit, people like this guy. Oh, for fuck's sake. So four to six happened after two but before three. But four and six also become become like Italian job movies, whereas one to three are just like, we're racing really fast and we're talking (laughs) about cars and having sex with women. Uh, My favorite line in the Fast and Furious movies was someone's like, yeah, we're going to make like $5 billion. And then Tyrese of Transformers fame goes, $5 million. That's a lot of vaginal action. And Aaron and I were watching, we were like, what does that mean? What? What what do you think? Like, what does that mean? And we just stopped yeah. Somebody wrote that. I know. And it's this guy, one guy, his name's Chris Morgan. And he's written like almost all the films. And I'm like, I can imagine Chris Morgan being like, yeah, that's the line. And like the director's like, I guess that's the line. It's it's a masterpiece, Phil. You have to engage with it. 
It is okay. like, even when quarantine is over, but you have to take your time because they're honestly so boring and so terrible, <laughs> except for six. Six is amazing, but they're actually incredibly boring and watch it with a friend and like play okay. drink. Like that's, that, I, that is my Fast and Furious podcast. I, I appreciate, I appreciate all of that advice because that's, because I know, now that I know that they're boring, I, I would be like, okay, so this is how I get through it. Yep. Um. In terms of just just as we start to think about wrapping up here, sure. um, one of the things that I've been asking everybody since the pandemic started is is to, is is what in this time has been giving you joy? What's been getting you from day to day? I have three things. Um, my first thing is that um, I got my first commission during this um, during this period. I'm in I'm in a theater season uh, to be produced. Ooh. And like, I've never had that before. And it wouldn't have happened because it's COVID because bracket, yikes, bracket, the play is online, but like mm. writing a play for an online container and knowing it will be produced and knowing I have like a commissioning wage based on PGC minimums, that's mm. giving me joy. Um, that's awesome. Yeah, thanks. I, I wrote a full draft in six days. I don't do that. I'm lazy, but like, I've never <laughs> been like given a production by myself and been like, hey, write what you want. Well, I'll give you dramaturgy and I'll respond really quickly. So that's making me joy. Um, huh. The second thing giving me joy is the garden project, um, which I talked about earlier in the podcast. Um, we had 36 applicants and we funded uh, four of them. And like, but even the people who got rejected, we reached out to them. We were like, Hey, we think you're really cool. Let's connect. Let's find yeah. out other ways to get you money. And like, everyone's been super generous about that. And also receiving $18,000 of donations from people as far as France like mm. that was really assuring. So like the commission, the garden project, and working with a team of seven people who really care about giving back to the community. And third, mm. honestly, the thing that's been giving me joy is, um, this is going to sound really strange. I've been gaming a lot in this break. And like, I played a game that I think will change my life. Like I played the last of us too. And it inspired uh. so much storytelling inspiration for me. They obey a non-Western plot structure that I've only seen in like weirdo Japanese games. Not weird because they're Japanese, because they mess the story structure. And also, mm. like, I love games where you play as the villain because like it makes you understand empathy. And like that's mm -hmm. something I've really been trying to practice when I talk to people in this really, really like polaric time. That like it's important to listen to people you don't agree with. And like mm -hmm. if they don't want to talk to you, that's fine. But like the as as a person who is not black who is not indigenous, who is cis, like I can go into fights that some of my colleagues can't go into. And like, yeah. not to be like a savior type, but like, I know that like I can engage with people and I, I have the energy to do that. And knowing that like, I'm, I'm trying to like listen to people more, that's giving me joy. So those are my three things. Hmm. Um, on the topic, on the topic of, of gaming, yeah. um, I would say like anybody who like, there are people who will say game, you know, video games are not art. And I can tell that they haven't played a video game since Pac-Man yep. because video games tackle storytelling, really good video games tackle storytelling in ways that that can tilt the, the storytelling medium. Um, something like Bioshock, the first Bioshock mm -hmm. takes the medium and uses it in a way that will fuck your brain. Mm -hmm. And this is the kind of thing that, that you can do with storytelling if you're clever about it. And if we do take things like that from, if we understand the medium and then think about the medium that we're stuck with for now, uh, yeah. the video, we can, we can challenge that. And then think about how creative we will be with the medium when we return to the stage. Exactly. What are your favorite games? I know we're wrapping up, but I'm actually genuinely. Curious. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No. Um. So, uh, favorite games. Uh, that's like Red Dead Redemption Two. Um, okay, okay. Was an incredible sequel to the first one that also tied into that sequel. I, mean, I guess it was really a prequel, but like, as a game, it was it was had hours of of play. Was real lots of great stories and was really engaging. Mm -hmm. Um, I'm a sucker pretty much for any Star Wars game. Oh, is, I have, is Fallen Order good? Do you, did you like it? Uh, Fallen Order was all right. Um, I I thought that it was short. Mm. I I wish that we would get away from every game having to involve Jedi in some way. That's fair. Um, but I think yeah, it was fine. Um, but I will, you know, if it's a Star Wars game, I will play it. And um, not gonna lie, um, uh, uh, Animal Crossing 
came out at just the right time for in the pandemic to be a soothing balm yep. to all of the anxiety that you were feeling mm-hmm. and just sort of like became the perfect thing to to calm yourself yeah um i think i put over 200 hours into animal crossing yeah. i had to stop because i started actually booking work <laughs> but like <laughs> honestly like when when we were like in peak pandemic like in like in april and, and even a bit of may um, mm. I put so many hours into paying off that stupid loan. Like, <laughs> I was I was going on the turn up forums and like yeah. I was on the stock market. I was figuring out how to evict the villagers I thought were like ruining my island's vibe. Like the island of Salami was a prosperous place. It was. It's it's funny. I heard somebody describe the game as a debt simulator. Yep, and it's not wrong. And yet it was also so calming. Yeah, to play. I because. Everybody on your island is, like, peaceful and, Mm -hmm. you know, generally kind. You know, everybody looks to you. And it's a very, like, it's very a peaceful game to play. And I think it came out, they were very fortunate. I mean, it was going to do fine, but it came out just at the start of the pandemic and everybody got it. Mm -hmm. I I think it's like, if I can think of the game, I mean, my, my game of the generation is Last of Us 2. But if I can think of the game of, like, the decade, and I, I think we're still in the same decade, it's Animal yeah. Crossing New Horizons. Because, like, hmm. also there are talk shows about it. Like, like yes. there's and it's become this wonderful social tool for, like, for people just to feel love and feel love yeah. from virtual avatars who will love them yeah. unconditionally no matter what they do in the real world. Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Aaron, thank you so much. This has been a fun conversation. Thank you. This has been a Homebody Productions production.